This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, I'm Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access, a website dedicated to high-value audio. And I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo, a leading headphone website. Well, it's a headphone website. (laughs) I think it's pretty good. (laughs) I think it's pretty great, yeah. We're both part of the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites dedicated to all sorts of aspects of audio, from very high performance to, to connected audio to like headphones to budget stuff, anything and everything in between. And what is our purpose for being here today? Well, unsurprisingly, we're going to talk about audio. (laughs) um, I think we're going to kick things off with a discussion of this paper that you sent me, an AES paper called Listener Preferences in Streamed Music by John Allen and Susanna Leonhofut. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Very impressive. This is a huge paper, and there is a lot to dig into. I have, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on the methodology. I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things. I don't even know if we're going to scratch the surface, but maybe between us we can say something intelligent about it. I don't know. Well, I sh- I sh- we should also add that reading that paper was inspired by an article on Soundstage Simplify by mm-hmm. uh, Gordon Brockhouse that's all about, uh, you know, he polled all of the Soundstage contributors and found out, you know, how do we, what are our sources for listening to music? And, you know, I mean, he's talking, you know, he's basically trying to find out, like, how many of us use streaming, how many of us use vinyl, how many of us use CD. And that actually kind of inspired me to read that AES paper, because normally I go, I don't need to digress into this right now. Let's, (laughs) what we're going to do for, (laughs) we'll digress later. So what what we're going to do for our second segment is we are going to call in uh, Soundstage Network's editor-in-chief, Jeff Fritz, who is fresh back from the Munich High End Show. And he is going to share with us the hottest trends from the show and his general comments about the, you know, what the show was like and, uh, you know, the favorite things he saw there as well. That's going to be an interesting segment for me because this is going to be the first time that we're having a guest call in. I mean, he's literally going to be calling in on his iPhone. So it's going to be a test of, uh, of the virtual studio that we have and the engineering side of things that I'm doing. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see how it goes. But uh, lastly, um, last episode, we discussed this uh, video by John Darko, uh, his coverage of the LS60 and how he was breaking it into two parts. And we discussed that. And and um, one thing that I don't think we really touched on too much is the fact that, you know, he said, oh, I'm going to listen to these for a month and then give you my impressions. And that led to a conversation between you, me and you about how, how we, you know, the difference between how we actually test and the story that we weave when we're writing reviews or doing any coverage of any sort. So I think I want to bring that conversation to the public and talk about the actual sausage making process and how, <laughs> how, how long it takes us to really form our impressions of gear. I think it's going to be, I don't know, maybe enlightening and entertaining for some people. 
But anyway, before we get to that, I want to dig into this this paper that you sent me, as well as the story that Gordon wrote about how we listen. Okay. Because this is big, man. This is big. This this paper that you sent me is a, is a 21-page PDF. And honestly, I think it's more information-dense than a lot of 500-page books that I've read. Um, uh, basically, yeah. what it boils down to is sort of a cross-disciplinary study where they brought in a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds and tried to gauge the effect of different masters. In other words, you know, a, an album that had been mastered maybe 20 years ago and then remastered more recently. What is the actual impact of that on a broad range of listeners and also the sort of the different settings, some of them kind of hidden, that can have an impact on listening impressions as well. But man, the methodology of this paper just kind of blows my mind because they are trying to cover all the bases. <laughs> you know, they're not they're not breaking things down into just one element. It's it's like they're trying to cover the totality of the listening experience. Yeah. But it's it's huge. And I think it's gonna have some pretty big impacts on the way we actually do scientific research on listening going forward. I agree. Why'd you send me this paper, Brent? I, I sent you this paper. I have read, uh, so so Gordon, as we were talking about before, uh, Gordon Brockhouse, the editor of Soundstage Simplify and a veteran editor of Canadian uh, audio and trade magazines for decades. Um, he wrote an article for Soundstage Simplify. That's uh, Soundstage, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I.com. And he polled everybody all the soundstage contributors to find out what, you know, how we consume music, you know, is it vinyl? Is it CDs? Is it ripped and downloaded files? Is it streamed, et cetera, et cetera. And as it turns out, we're, over, we're all over the map. I mean, we have, um, uh, you know, uh, we have guys who listen mostly to vinyl. Uh, uh, Jason Thorpe, who's, I think our main uh, turntable reviewer listens mostly to vinyl, very little to streaming. And then you go to the more extremes like me and Doug, where almost everything we listen to is streaming. I mean, I listen to vinyl as a novelty once in a while. And I listen to uh, streaming all the time. And I have a few downloaded files that honestly, I use them for evaluating gear. I don't use them for for listening for pleasure. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, but but it got me thinking, and Gordon cites a lot of stuff in here about streaming trends and all that. And then I saw when I was going through the AES journal, which uh, you go to AES.org and you can see a lot of this stuff. Um, the journal comes out every, is it every month? I can't remember, but I go on there and check it periodically and go through the articles. A lot of the articles are, are either too esoteric for me or too far outside the, the things that interest me. But this one, because it was like listening preferences for streaming. Okay, well, that affects us all. You know, that's something that, that all audiophiles should probably have an interest in. And the article, as I dug into it further, is <laughs> listening preferences for streaming is kind of a Trojan horse for this article. Because it, what, it, what it really is, in some ways, is a meta article about listening tests so so normally in a listening test you you line up a bunch of people and you try to get a variety of ages and you try to get usually going to have the expert listeners sometimes you may want to bring in naive or inexperienced listeners um and you're going to do a blind test you'll put on headphones you play them speakers whatever and you'll play them something and you'll see if they can tell a difference and if they have a preference um but you're not taking into account 
the demographic differences. You're not taking into account their differences in music education. You're not taking into account whether or not they're interested in audio, et cetera. And I always used to like to say, you know, my dad, if you put, if you gave my dad a listening test and played Led Zeppelin immigrant song and Deep Purple uh, Highway Star, he could not distinguish between the two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He would say they are the same song. So therefore, yeah. <laughs> you know, his results of a listening test with those with that material would probably not be super valid. All right. So mm-hmm. th- this is something I've always kind of thought about is you know the level of, of interest and disinterest in audio. And I think, you know, Stereo Review was was kind of famous for publishing uh listening tests that that Tom Nussain did, who's a uh a, a the late Tom Hussein, who was a, a very respected and kind of innovative uh, audio writer, and but Tom Tom's test you know, he did a lot of you know nicely done blind tests, but they never seemed to find a difference between any two things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people speculated that maybe his listening panel wasn't particularly interested in <laughs> the differences between you know amplifiers or DACs or anything else for that matter. So. Uh, anyway, so these guys really dug into this and they, I'm trying to, I gotta, I gotta pull up on my computer. The list is just shockingly exhaustive of all the parameters that they considered. So they considered, mm-hmm. um, let's see, I'm, I'm waiting for this JPEG to open up here. I did it. I had to do a screen capture. So they, okay. So can I just tell, I'll just tell roughly how they did the test. This is a long paper people bear sure. with us, yeah. but it's really, it's worth it. Anyway. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to to take some different cuts off of music streaming, like different masters, different cuts played with, with the, the normalization feature on and off. And, and the, the variety of tunes is, is ranges from an, an old Ella Fitzgerald and Ink Spots tune up to a fairly recent Beyonce thing. And yeah, it's a Beethoven. It is really it, it, just a huge variety of material in this test. And so, but they ranked the results by by also calculating in the results or the 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 factors of age and gender um the amount of time they spend listening their level of music education their level of interest in music their level of interest in sound quality like are they audiophiles or not their level of education about sound quality and also the order of presentation which actually is something that's been uh examined previously many times uh, normally that's easy to, to, to fix because you just randomize your order of presentation. I do that all the time, mm-hmm. but it does, it can have an effect. That's why you have to, cause you know, a lot of times you like the first thing you hear and this, but then the second thing is different. And so there, there, there's a bias towards different sometimes anyway. So they, they ran tests on these five tunes Well, it's, it's really like it's four tunes really, but it's two it's it's multiple versions of a Beyonce thing, and uh, they did Michael Jackson's "Bad" and they pulled it off the CD and they pulled the streamed version. And those those two things they said you know were similar masters, but they had different you know ratios of of peak level to average level, which is you know the level of of dynamic range compression. They had this Beethoven with the volume normalization on and off, and they. They don't say they use Spotify, but it's obvious they did. No, they said they use Spotify. Oh, they did. Okay, uh, sorry, I didn't catch that. It's a long paper because I, 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 I could tell from the way they were talking about all the features they're using Spotify. Anyway, the Ella and the Ink Spots tune—they have a an original 
master that have kind of low levels of treble and then a later master that had higher levels of treble. With the Beyonce thing, they compared a live cut, a live version of a tune to a different mastered version of the same thing and then to a studio version of the tune. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a real wide variety. And you wouldn't do this if you were looking to get really tight results. And that's something else we should talk about is, you know, like when I do listening tests, I let people bring in their own material usually. And mm-hmm. I let them, you know, I insist that the levels are matched. And, but, you know, as best I can, sometimes it's hard. But I, uh, I let them listen at whatever volume they want. I let them listen in, in whatever order they want and kind of explore the products as, as much as they want. Whereas, so, so when you do that, you, your results are not as tight. You're going to get a greater variety. You're not going to have, you know, 90% confidence level like you might have in, say, the Harmon curve test and things like that. You're going to have a lot less confidence in your results. Um, so anyway, uh, you want to jump to the results of what they found? Actually, no. I want to talk about one other thing in their methodology real oh, okay. quick because there was um, there was something that really stood out to me is one of the things that they tried to account for is the affect of uh, extrasonic stimuli, um, other senses than than auditory. And this is something that really stood out to me because I, I I don't know if you'll remember this, but several years ago, like I called you with a problem and I asked you to mm-hmm. help me find some literature that would discuss the problem. I mm-hmm. my, my mother-in-law is visiting. And well, this happens almost every day. My mother-in-law visiting? No, that's that's no, pretty rare. You calling me and asking for <laughs> for technical <laughs> advice? That's true. That's true. But my my mother-in-law was visiting, and Bethany and I wanted to share this uh, David Attenborough series with her. Our planet. We had watched it like. Mm-hmm twice already and it had only been out a week right so i knew this program pretty well but we were showing her uh their program and i paused the 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 program to go to the restroom take a restroom break came back sat down press play and it was like something sounds off something is wrong what happened to my audio and i'm checking my levels my levels are fine my my av preamp was set to reference levels um i checked to make sure i hadn't engaged some funky processing no it was just pass through audio what was going on and what i eventually figured out was my room was too bright right and i i said something about that and my mother was like oh yeah while you were out of the room i turned the lights up a little you keep it too dark in here but what's funny is it wasn't enough of a difference in illumination for me to register it as she had turned the lights up but because she had turned the lights up my perception of sound was off and something sounded Hmm. wrong with the sound mix and you know i don't know if you'll remember this but you had a lot of trouble finding literature that helped me sort of understand this and write about this so the fact that they touched on the the effect of extra sonic stimuli on the listening experience was really that was an aha moment for me but anyway proceed let's talk about the results a little well sort of the 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 big uh the big surprise was that they and they had a lot of subjects in this by the way they had i want to say like 40 some odd men and 30 some odd women something like that Mm -hmm. they really did a first class job on this and they try to get a range of everything from real experts to you know from sound engineers to completely naive listeners and so they found that, you know, very often, in, in many cases, all these different parameters had a big effect on people's perception of which master they preferred. 
And mm-hmm. they found that to their surprise, people very often preferred the more dynamically range compressed version of a tune. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that I found interesting, I, I've always been frustrated. You know, the 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 loudness war thing came up about, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And mm-hmm. Immediately, you know, people started writing about it, and immediately you started to have all these a, a lot of audio enthusiasts saying, "Yes, the loudness wars are terrible." And I remember one guy. I wrote something about this, and one guy wrote in, "You know, dynamic range compression saps the life out of the music!" with an exclamation point. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, and you know, I've been using, I've been doing recording since the early '80s, and it's like, well. There's a lot of really good reasons you want to use dynamic range compression, and and the fact that you you flip the you, uh, the fact that you put a compressor into the into the chain doesn't mean the music is suddenly sapped of life. And there's a lot of cases where stuff sounds better with a lot of compression, and it still sounds quote unquote dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, look, I mean, I obviously use compressors a lot because I I make music, and if you want to make modern music you're going to be doing dynamic range compression and and i know what bad compression and good compression sounds like and you know i listen to occasionally i listen to top 40 radio just for kicks and if you listen to the vocal tracks in there you'll hear this sort of inhuman perfection to them Mm -hmm. because they're first of all they their composites usually have a whole bunch of tracks and second of all they're auto-tuned and third of all they're very heavily dynamic dynamically they're 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 heavily compressed. I keep trying to come up with a dynamically ranged something, but I'm failing. Well, let's just say let's say dynamically compressed instead of like MP3 compressed. I think we could agree that the dynamically compressed kind yeah, of well, yeah. It. Thank you, thank so, you. Yeah, dynamically compressed is our new term. All right, now the whole industry has to follow that. So <laughs> anyway, so when you listen to let's say Doja Cat, right? Listen, listen to like a Doja Cat record. The 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 vocals there's not a lot of human element left in those vocals. They're very compressed. They're auto-tuned. It sounds, it doesn't sound human. It doesn't sound expressive. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. But then if you listen to, let's say, uh, one of my favorite albums of the last 20 years, uh, uh, ZZ Top La Futura, it's a Rick Rubin production. It's really heavily compressed, but it sounds awesome. And, you know, so, it's a matter of how it's used and it's a matter. And, you know, look, Doja Cat listeners have grown up with Doja Cat is, you know, 40 year old dudes are not listening to Doja Cat. Okay. Doja Cat's listeners have grown up with, with dynamic range compression and they've gotten used to that. And that's what they want to hear. Cause to them hearing an Ella Fitzgerald recording where there's limited dynamic range compression, um, or, or I should say a small amount of dynamic range compression, um, may sound very foreign to them, mm-hmm. and you know, you you like what you you like what you've been exposed to. Typically, I remember several years ago where the, there was an album that I was super into, uh, Joanna Newsom Ease, that's spelled Y S, and and I was super super into that album, and I wanted you to be super super into it too, and I sent you a copy of the CD 
for your birthday. I mean, this is, I think this was before streaming was really a thing, but I'm, then it really must have been. <laughs> Newsom was really slow to adopt streaming anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I remember I did, like your first comment about that album was, man, she's like, she's not using any compression. <laughs> it's like hard to listen to. And it was just, you know, it's true. It's her recording straight to tape on her harp. And then Van Dyke Parks took and did an orchestral arrangement to it. But it kind of shocked me that you said like, yeah, this thing needs way more compression because it's hard to listen to. And I'm sitting there going, what really that i don't know that 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 created a sort of paradigm shift in my brain in, in terms of of expectations for compression and such just the fact that you were reacting so strongly to the lack of dynamic compression in that recording it, can, it makes things hard to listen to you listen to there's there's um you know try to listen to orchestral recordings in the car it's not easy i kind of mm. wish cars had built-in compressors um but you know, there's so much dynamic range in a, in a decent orchestral recording that, you know, when the when there's a little soft passage with the flutes kind of going real soft and some light percussion in there just barely ticking away, you can't hear it when you're on the road. And and then if you turn it up loud enough, then when you get to the triple forte passages, you're blowing out your ears. Well, even something as simple as a podcast, I mean, I'm learning so much. And I, believe me, I have so much left to learn. I've, I'm barely scratching the surface, but I'm learning so much about audio production just from this podcast. One of the tricks that I started doing around, I don't know, episode four or so um, in the in the mixing and mastering was I would tell my Amazon Echo to play Thunderstorm Sounds of Nature by Relaxing Sounds of Nature. And I literally listened to this loop of, of this very dynamic thunderstorm recording while I'm mixing and mastering oh. the podcast. Because if I can't get our voices through that, then how is somebody going to listen to to it in the car driving down the road. That's so, really um, smart. I have to say, I, I commend you for that. That's a good idea. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. So anyway, let's let's continue talking about the the uh, the conclusions for this because one of the things that stood out to me that was interesting is that there was one case where the Ink Spots and Ella Fitzgerald recordings, women had a preference for the the darker recording than the bright one, but otherwise mm-hmm. it was really consistent. I thought that was fascinating. The other thing that I thought was cool was that listening time was was a significant factor. It's like the the longer that people listen to that Ink Spots recording, the more they liked the brighter version. But generally across the board, women didn't like the brighter version. I there's just there's just so much here to unpack that I don't think I've wrapped my brain around it yet. There's a lot. I kind of feel like I want to write an article about this paper. And sort of distill, I mean, like a lot of AES papers, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy lift. Um, you know, I'd like to distill it down because, the, the, see, to me, the conclusion of this paper is there are all sorts of things that can affect our perception of sound quality. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the paradigm right now in, in audio reviewing is some dude, usually some dude, uh, Usually, <laughs> quite often an older dude, um, you know, listens to something and gives his reaction to it. But as this paper shows, there's so many factors that can go into that dude's reaction to whatever it is that he heard that, you know, you, you probably don't want to take that as gospel. You, you know, probably I, I was I was reading this and I was thinking like, ideally, the way you want to do this is have people. I mean, testing should always be blind, right? And you, you want to get rid of all all the kind of biases, right, mm-hmm. that you might have towards a brand or something yeah. like that. But then, you know, you know, once you start getting all these different factors involved, 
it really kind of tends to randomize the results. And it's hard to predict how any one person is going to react to a certain thing. You can tell, I mean, I can tell you that, look, if you have a really bad set of headphones, I mean, I've, I have reviewed and measured a couple of really bad sets of headphones recently for soundstage, just, just as for kind of academic reasons for, you know, presenting in my columns, not for a review, Mm -hmm. but you know, you can listen to those and go like, yeah, that's terrible. If, If somebody likes that, they have clearly extremely flawed hearing or they're, they're, I don't know, maybe like if you pulled like one of those dudes out of the jungle, who's never been exposed to like modern technology, maybe they might like it, but then again, they'd probably like anything you played for them or maybe they'd hate it. Um, but yeah. it's just, it's just, it just sort of shows that just cause some dude likes some piece of audio gear, even if it's in, you know, good structure testing, which it almost never is. Um, you know, you may have factors in your own background and your own environment and everything like that that leads you to a different conclusion. And that's okay. So let's take a break and we'll come back and we will talk in depth about the Munich High End Show with Jeff Fritz, soundstage editor. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. This is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I am Dennis Berger. And we are here with a very special guest. We have Jeff Fritz, who is the editor-in-chief of Soundstage. He is the guy who actually is in charge of all the stuff we write and who actually makes sure it all sounds smart. And... He doesn't always do a great job with my stuff because I know for a fact I've sounded like an idiot at times. Okay, well, I mean, look, I mean, you can only ask so much. But, <laughs> That's true. But uh, anyway, Jeff is just back from the Munich High End Show in Munich, Germany, which is the biggest audio show, I think, in the whole world, or certainly the most important audio show in the whole world. And Jeff is going to give us what the three big trends were from the Munich High End Show. So welcome, Jeff. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being here. And uh, yeah, just back from Munich's high end about a week ago and, uh, you know, actually a little bit less than a week ago now. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of fill you guys in. I I think for me, high end 2022 was kind of uh, it was kind of a tale of three different shows. And, you know, you mentioned the three trends and some of them were positive and some of them not so positive. So we'll start off with the positive. So one of the trends was with manufacturers really stepping outside of their comfort zone and producing products that you wouldn't typically see. You know, one example was actually Esoteric, the Japanese manufacturer that's most known for digital sources, amplifiers, preamplifiers, that sort of thing. Uh, they came out with their first turntable, uh, very esoteric-ish in its industrial design, but um, you know, going into a new direction for that company, and that was pretty exciting. Probably the most exciting example that I have of that, however, was from Monitor Audio. You know, Monitor Audio is, uh, you know, known for rectilinear boxes with three, four, five drivers, uh, front-facing drivers, you know, fairly typical loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. They came out with what is uh, they're calling right now the Concept 50, which is, uh, as the name implies, it's a concept loudspeaker. Yeah, we talked about that on the last episode. Really a bizarre-looking 
device, honestly, it's got a uh, two opposing columns with force-canceling woofers that fire into each other, two in each column, so for a total of four. And then on the front, actually connecting the two columns, there is a, um, it, it, for lack of a better term, there's a bridge that goes across. There's an AMT mm-hmm. tweeter that is then surrounded by six two-inch full-range drivers that produce Ooh. primarily mid-range. And oh. it's it it doesn't it doesn't actually even look like a speaker when you see it, um, but in, so they're full they're full range drivers, huh? I see. We we assume they're yeah, little mid ranges. Yeah, they call them two inch two inch full range drivers is what's in the description huh. surrounding surrounding the AMT tweeter. And you know, I think you know the base was you know pretty typical you know, for a large loudspeaker, but the thing mm-hmm. that really stood out most was the imaging. It was, it was different. And, and when I say different, it was different, potentially better than what you typically hear. Um, it, images just popped in a way that, you know, you don't get in a, in a, in a, in a, in a usual loudspeaker. So, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the sound because like I said, it was a concept uh, but the but the interesting thing is is that it is actually pretty close to launch. Uh, they are going to launch it as a commercial product probably um, within the next six months to a year. It's going to be more expensive than anything they've ever done. Uh, I think the the estimate is somewhere between fifty k and a hundred k a pair. Whoa! Uh, but, but it is but it is something that's that's you know it's not just putting more drivers in a larger sturdier box and so that's something that I, I really I really appreciated from them and and other companies that were doing similar so that that's probably the first trend the second trend uh, is not really good or bad but uh, you know almost all the rooms had vinyl and streaming uh, CD was you know it just wasn't there in 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 any kind of any kind of numbers yeah. but it was interesting to me how many rooms were doing vinyl and streaming not one or the other and it it seems like at least in the high end those are the two dominant formats right now so that's that's probably the second trend and then the third trend and this this is the one that's not so good and you know, I know you guys will probably have some opinions on this. It's just the ever increasing prices of some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 there were digital sources upwards of 200 K and above. And, and, you know, and, and, and the, the interesting thing, you know, and, and yes, you know, these are products that obviously are there to appeal to the luxury buyer, but, they're actually claiming some performance breakthroughs in these products. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it all comes down to the subjective listening in an environment like that. It's not like, you know, anybody's running any measurements or there's really any proof in the pudding for these things. But that, that was a trend that, you know, I, I honestly thought that we had seen the peak maybe three or four years ago. 
And, you know, with with a hundred thousand dollar digital source from, you know, companies like DCS and MSB technology companies that I really respect, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you've got digital sources that are that are twice that much. And, you know, loudspeakers that just continue to go up in price. You know, it wasn't too long ago when, you know, a twenty thousand dollar amplifier was still something that was fairly expensive. Twenty thousand dollars may be entry level uh, for some of these companies <laughs> producing Solid state power amplifiers, you know, uh, it's not uncommon to hear a consumer at a show like this state that, you know, $60,000 for a pair of those solid state monoblocks looks like a pretty good deal. You know, that's, that's something Mm. that, you know, the, 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 you know, it's, it's one of those things when you gauge the consumer reaction, at least at a show like this, there's not a lot of outrage. There's, there's pretty much acceptance that this is just where the market is right now. So, you know, I don't, I don't particularly, you know, I don't particularly like that. I don't, I don't have that kind of cash to drop on stereo equipment, nor, nor would I, if I, if I had it, but apparently there are enough people that are going to spend that kind of money on high end stereo components to warrant product introductions in that, in that, uh, in that realm. So go, go figure. So when you say a, a digital, you know, s- streaming device, do you, do you mean just the streamer or does it include a digital to analog converter or, you know, for, for a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars There's, there's one, there's one brand in particular that I'm thinking of, uh, a company it's called Wadax. It's mm-hmm. W-A-D-A-X. They have a DAC and streamer. Uh, two separate components that I believe retail for for well over 200k. So that's that's the one that I'm thinking of right now. You guys, I would love to to have you guys research that product and and give me your take. And you know, particularly from a from a technical standpoint, uh, if you guys see anything that would be uh, considered groundbreaking there, or if any information has been released on it that you think is interesting. But yeah, it, it, when when I say 200k, that's a that's a DAC and a streamer. Yeah. I, you know, Doug, our founder, posted something on Facebook about that Wadax product. And this thing is, so th- So I just got to say, this thing is as big as a high-end amplifier. It's gigantic, and it probably weighs a ton. And from a functional standpoint, it doesn't do anything more than my Samsung Galaxy S10 phone does, which can stream from, you know, any source and in, you know, high-res or, you know, reasonable high-res. And so that's where I'm kind of... I mean, I can see people like piling a bunch of money into a digital to analog converter because, you know, you can put a fancy power supply on it and things like that. And you can do things that that will certainly make it at the very least a measured difference, maybe an audible difference. But like with a streaming, the the thing that actually pulls the stream off of Cobas or Tidal or something and then spits it out digitally I, it's like wow, that's that much money. I don't know. Yeah, and 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 that's not the only example. There are uh, plenty of expensive servers out there. You know, twenty grand, thirty grand, fifty grand. You know, these these prices are not uncommon for for digital music servers these days. So yeah, that that's 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 a trend. And 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 honestly, you know, what what's intriguing to me is thinking where is this going to end right <laughs> you know at what point at what point is 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 it too much if if 100k is it too much and now we can double to 200k is 400k too much you know wh- wh- where do we get to a point in high end audio where 
you know, that's just enough. Even for the super rich guys that, you know, will, will, will pay practically anything for these components. When is enough enough? That's the question that oh, I have. Boy. That's a tough question. And if it is just about conspicuous consumption, you know, there, there seemingly is no limit to those types of expenditures, you know, for, for folks that want to spend that kind of money. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a rhetorical question, certainly, but I, I just don't think that there, that there is an end in sight. And, I, you know, it, it, I don't know. I don't know where the market's going to go. Jeff, that. I want to I, I point out that you, you did sort of your normal show coverage where you did product roundups, but you also did this post that I really loved called Jeff's Hot Takes, right? You just sort of right. threw out these pithy quotes and you just let them exist. There was one in particular that I wanted to draw attention to, and I wanted to ask you what you meant by this and get you to expand. Sure. And here's the quote. There is more engineering in the entry-level products at High in 2022 than many of the six-figure components I saw and heard at the show. Can you expand on that? Of course, that's the one that you would uh, <laughs> that would draw your attention, Dennis. That's that's not surprising at all. Uh, no, well, you know, so yes, there, there. I will expand on that, and I'll give you an actual example. Um, one of the loudspeakers, and this is this this will actually draw two quotes from that particular article. One of the loudspeakers that really impressed me uh, was the new Epos loudspeaker, uh, which is a brand name that a lot of a lot of folks uh, make recognize from from years past. But it's the the speakers now are being designed from uh, by a company called the Fink Team. Uh, a gentleman named Carl Heinz Fink uh, leads a group of engineers, and you know they're kind of guns for hire, so to speak. They do have their own products uh, labeled under or, uh, or branded under the Fink team name, but they they've designed this Epos loudspeaker, and it was about fifty four hundred euro per pair, which is not an outrageous price at all. It's a really uh, super large, heavy duty looking bookshelf or stand mount loudspeaker that sounds like a large floor stander. Honestly, um, you know when I listen to it in the in the room at high end, and the 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 team. If you go on the Think, Think Team website, you'll see just a a, a a lot of engineering resources. You know they're 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 not short on information. They put a lot out there. Um, you know, that's one example, you know, one speaker that, uh, wasn't at high end. And this is another quote in that article was the Kef LS 60 wireless. Um, you know, everybody's been talking about that product. Look at the white paper that Kef put out on that product. Just a ton of details on the engineering that went into developing that product, what they're doing with their Unicore driver. You know, it's really, it's really, I don't know if groundbreaking, that's probably a little bit too heavy a term, but it's definitely uh, something new. We'll put it like that. And I think those are the products that are the types of products where you really see tremendous engineering and you see a lot of information and they're not, they're not super expensive products. And when you compare that to you know loudspeakers that are three hundred four hundred thousand um, dollars you know some of the amplifiers that were there that were you know two hundred three hundred thousand dollars and there's nothing right there's nothing there's there's very little in the way you know maybe they you know in the amplifier they specify the transformer size or you know so but in terms of actual uh, you know 
engineering, uh, you know, ground being broken, right? Which you would expect for products that, that are, that are going for these types of prices. There's very little information. So that quote to circle back to your original question, that quote, it, it, it really, it really, for me, you know, it, it, I want somebody to show me, right? I want somebody to, to, to show me why these products are priced what they are, why they're better than something else, you know, that, and, and, and not necessarily better than something else that's, you know, two or 300 bucks, but maybe just better than something else that's half the price, yeah. which is still expensive. And there's, there was a real shortage of that information that I could see. And, and, you know, there were companies that did a good job. I will call out one other company that I thought did a great job in terms of presenting information, uh, was Dolly. They, they came out with a new flagship called the core. I think I'm pronouncing that right core with a K K O R E. Um, and they, they put out a really good, uh, book on the engineering that went into the loudspeaker, lots of detail, you know, so there, 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 there was some of that at the upper end that speaker sells for, or is going to retail for 80,000 euro per pair. So certainly expensive. Uh, but there was a lot of engineering that went into that, into that product. So, uh, you know, the, the calling out the industry from my perspective, I would say if you're going to release something that's super expensive, or even if it's not super expensive, but give consumers the the benefit of the doubt that they're going to want the information to support the claims that you're making. And when I don't see that, that's that's a problem for me. Mm-hmm. I, I I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, there's so many so many times we see these presentations of an amplifier or something, and they might kind of run through a couple features, but then they'll give you a piece of marketing you know, a marketing sheet on it or something that was, that was obviously written by someone who's never heard the product, <laughs> you know, and they just throw in some audiophile buzzwords and they consider that to be adequate. And I completely agree with you. I really admire people that go to the trouble to tell you why their products are worth the money. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, that is the thing you would think if the engineering really exists in some of these products, why wouldn't they be proud of it? Why wouldn't they want to tell you about it? I, 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 you know, my, my take on it is I think that they would. I think that they would. And so when I don't see that information released with the product, you know, it makes me skeptical. And, you know, maybe that's just Jeff the skeptic, but, <laughs> you know, I've been in this industry a long time and, and sometimes I know that that information just does not exist. Yeah. Well, uh, we just heard from Jeff the skeptic. I want to hear from <laughs> Jeff the sentimental softy because it's been, it's been over two years since you've been to, to, to a show like this, hasn't it? I, this yes. is your first big show. 2019. Since. The last high end was in 2019. So and yeah, is that the last audio years. show that you did or it was, did, it was. So what? Did I, it, oh, well, actually I think, I think, uh, Florida in the beginning of 20 was at the beginning of 2020. But anyway, the, the last, the last high end show was, uh, in Munich was 2019. So what, how did it feel for you to be back on a show floor, back mingling with audiophiles? Just, I, I want to know like more about the experience than the, the, the products and the trends. Like just what did it feel like? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, you know, I love high end in Munich. It is a fantastic show. There were, there were this year, there was tons of enthusiasm. You could see a little bit, you know, of, uh, of, 
probably, I don't know, maybe if I had to just put a number on it, maybe 10% smaller than in previous years, but it was still vibrant. It was still full of great manufacturers. It was still full of terrific listening experiences, lots of enthusiastic audiophiles. Uh, the show is, is extremely well organized and produced. You know, when you go to a show like that, it's, it's, you know, you can't help but not have a great time if you love this stuff. And so I, I had a terrific time. I think that, um, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things where we're doing show coverage, so you don't really have as much opportunity just to sit and listen as you would like because you're just gathering information and typing and getting reports online and that sort of thing. But it's particularly for the consumer. And this year they did two trade days. Uh, Thursday and Friday were trade days. Saturday and Sunday were the consumer days. Uh, you know, if, if for a consumer to go for two days, they could just listen and listen and listen and still not hear nearly everything. There's there's that much there. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the report from, you know, just the, the general feel of the show was nothing but positive. And I personally had a great time being there. Cool. I wish we could have gone. But, <laughs> but, you know, well, maybe, you know, I've, I've been twice with you guys and I really hope to arrange my life next year to where I can go again. Because it's just the yeah, best. And, it's just know, the best. It's the best it, audio it really experience. Is just, it really is just the best. And, you know, I think after a successful year this year, I would imagine it's my prediction uh, here that they will probably have a record year in 2023, maybe yeah. the biggest high-end show ever, just just because there'll be like that slingshot effect, right? You know, they they did pretty well coming back. People were probably, you know, a little bit skeptical, holding back just a bit. And now that everyone has seen that it's it was successful, you know, I think they'll be there in droves next year. Yeah, I'm sure. That's great. Well, um, Jeff, I, I really appreciate you joining us because, you know, we've been, Brent and I have been looking at, at the show coverage that all of you guys are doing and sort of, you know, giving our Statler and Waldorf impressions of it, but it's, it's nice to actually talk to somebody who was there. So thank you. Well, it is, it is my pleasure and you guys carry on and, uh, yeah, well, I, I can't wait to hear what else you guys have to talk about the rest of this uh, podcast. We can't either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brett, you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. Thank you so much, Jeff. Yes, thank you. Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I am Brent Butterworth. And we're going to wrap up this episode by <laughs> sort of rehaving a conversation that you and I had in private, Brent, related to a topic that we touched on in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Last episode, we talked about this video that John Darko did about the new KEF LS60 wireless speaker and talked about how he's breaking his coverage into two parts and the fact that, you know, he sort of did his introduction and he's going to listen to the speakers for three or four weeks and then do his critical review. And you know, you and I both kind of, I think, had a laugh about that off air. Um, yeah. But I thought it might be interesting to, to actually dig back into that conversation on the record for the public okay. and talk about the differences between the stories that we tell when we're reviewing gear and how we actually review gear. 
Sure. Is I don't, I mean, I don't, you know, there's, there's this, there's this myth of the process. And I think we sort of all buy into the myth, but I don't know if we actually buy into it or not. So I wanted to talk about the difference between how long it takes us to, to develop a, a, a you know, an estimation of the performance of a product and, and the sort of the story we would tell when we're reviewing it. So I think the thing that inspired this is John was talking about how it's going to take him four weeks to do a review of these speakers. And and we started mm-hmm. speculating about how long does he really spend doing that? Because I know he's turning another gear through there too, you know. Oh yeah, and and John's a pro. How much time do you? Yeah, John's a pro. You know, John's been kicking around for I don't know ten years at least. And um, yeah, so it it made me kind of think like, how much time do you really need to evaluate products? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of there's a lot of thing, a, a lot of tendency in this industry to to, to value, you know, spending this huge amount of time. If you look at manufacturers' websites, they're always like, oh, you know, we designed this amplifier with rigorous uh, listening tests and all this sort of stuff, and we spent, you know, months doing all this stuff. Um, but I got to kind of throw something in there. I was with, this is an anecdote that I think was, it was revelatory for me. I was, I, once I was, I was on a a tour with a speaker manufacturer of some regional dealers. All right, we, we were going to look at some installations that, you know, some some big fancy home theater installations and stuff that his company had been involved with. And we stopped by to see one of his dealers. And his dealer was demonstrating. We went and saw the dealer's showrooms and stuff. And his he was most passionate about this amplifier. It was like a, you know, hand-built boutique amplifier. And I can't remember the brand, but it was a brand I'd never actually heard of. And the guy had the amplifier manufacturer just come out with their own line of cables. And he, the, the dealer kind of proudly brought this cable up to me and the speaker manufacturer. It was like an RCA plug, right, with a barrel around it. Mm-hmm. And it had this little kind of like polymer, polymer grip thing, you know, the little grip thing that you put on the RCA plug to make it easier to pull, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of them have that. Yeah, so standard little polymer, rubber, something grip thing. And, and he says, it took him two years to find the right material for this. And wow. And the speaker manufacturer goes like, what was he looking for? And the guys, well, you know, just the one that, the one that sounded good, the one that sounded the best. <laughs> this is a piece of, wow. a little piece of pop plastic around the barrel of the RCA connector. Wow. Okay. So we were driving back and we, we, we were staying in a different town. We had to drive about 200 miles to a, a, the next hotel. And so we're kind of sitting there just, you know, hanging out, listening to the radio for about half an hour. He's like, look, I just got to say something I'm like what he says, you know, as far as that guy, like needing two years to find the right material for that RCA plug, he's like, you know, I could spend two years driving to our hotel tonight. If I suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I think I mentioned to you that I could tell you everything I'm going to know about an audio product from two songs. It's actually three. And what made me realize that is I'm diving into a review of a new Marantz integrated amp right now. And I realized I always go to three songs. Okay. So kiss rock and roll all night. Um, No. Yeah, that would be one. And then um, which Celtic Frost tune do you use? <laughs> no, no. I use Almond Brothers uh, Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. And what that tells me is, is it tells me a lot about tonal balance because I, you know, if any, I, I've heard that song so many hundreds of times throughout my life that if anything is off, I go and I'm going to recognize it immediately. I use uh, Beastie Boys Hey Ladies 
from uh, Paul's Boutique. Mm-hmm. What that's going to tell me is it's going to tell me a lot about imaging, sound staging, transient response. Also, it's going to tell me if an amp is giving me enough currents to really sort of plow through the the pretty low impedance dips in my paradigm towers right Mm -hmm. you know you can you can you can look at the specifications of an amp and oh this one's 60 watts and this one is 60 watts they don't necessarily behave the same with with a load like that and then i listened to um george michael uh freedom 90 and and again that's going to be a combination of all of those things i'm going to get sort of the the transients from the bongos uh, and and if that song sounds thin, then I know yeah, my amp is not really giving me as much current as I need. Um, but then, you know, the rest of the review process is I, like I can't name those three songs every time I do a review or people would think I'm just copying and pasting the same review over. So a lot of what goes in the review process is going Okay, what other songs illustrate these points? Like, what else can I find that illustrates the observations that I want to make? And I have to dig through a year worth of reviews to make sure. Have I already used that that song in a review? Okay, no, I have. Or have? No, okay, throw that aside. Let's find something else. And that's really a lot of what goes into the actual process of writing a review is just like, what are the songs that illustrate what I want to talk about? And I haven't used them in a while. So, yeah, I think I think when people say that they they're going to spend a month or two months or three months uh reviewing a piece of gear you know it's i think a lot of times people say that just because it sounds more impressive but most mm. of that time is going to be casual listening they're not going to be sitting there doing focused listening with specific material that they've chosen to ferret out you know the problems in the product um and I, you know, I, I mean, and I start like that, you know, I start with just, I get a product and I, I, if it's headphones, you know, I let it run for 10 hours or something just to make absolutely sure it's broken in. And that's, and that's plenty of break in time. Um, and I just listen to it casually and kind of, you know, maybe while I'm walking my dog or who knows what, I don't know. And, um, and I kind of get an idea of where the thing is and, 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 and what it's doing and what problems it might have. And so, when I go to do the review, the review is actually my process. You know, I'll go through tunes. I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't ever write about all the tunes I listen to. No. Just the ones that illustrate the problems, and or the advantages. You know, and you know, I will if I I tend to focus on the one the biggest problem the headphone has, and I try to aggravate it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I could, I could, I could tell you I spend three months with these headphones, and once in a while I do, but it's never like I'm focused. I'm sitting there with my eyes closed, listening, because you know you don't you don't have to do that. Yeah, the one the one thing I'll say in in Darko's defense is that he is, especially with the LSCC, he is reviewing a very complicated connected product, and oh, a true. lot of times, you know, the, you know that's you know you will find after a week or so of listening oh this thing drops wi-fi like periodically or you know things like that or yeah. or or you know it doesn't really want to connect to bluetooth as well as this other bluetooth speaker that i had things yeah. like that you oh, know the, th- those, especially yeah. as the products get more complicated yeah you have to find those quirks but, those things but, you really uh, do yeah, have to yeah. ferret out and i'm not i'm not criticizing john here in any way actually because no you know he's got a lot of stuff to do <laughs> he's got a lot on his plate mm-hmm. but i think that there and he's not saying like oh you must listen to these things for three to four weeks straight with you know listen to i don't know patricia barber over and over to understand the musicality of blah blah whatever and a lot of dudes write that bs but 
No, mm-hmm. he's not saying that at all. He's just saying like, you know, it's going to take me three to four weeks. But if you look at all the things he does, well, it's not like he's waking up at eight in the morning and, and doing focused listening for eight hours, then <laughs> repeat, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I, I just think that there's a lot of, you see a lot of chest beating in audio reviews where, you know, people are like, oh, I listened to this and you had to, you know, you have to listen to, you know, to intently for so long to find the flaws in a product. and. Um, you know, I still remember a great quote from Julian Hirsch where, you know, he said, you know, some audiophiles insist that, you know, a flaw that it takes them three or four days of listening to find is serious. And, and, and I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, if it takes me three or four days of listening to, to find a flaw in a product, I don't consider that flaw to be serious. Right. Yeah. When we were testing the early THX gear when I was at Video Magazine, they had this decorrelator thing, which is like a chorus box, you know, like you put your guitar through a chorus box. Uh huh. Kind of takes one signal and delays it and pitch shifts it slightly to make it sound like a chorus, right? Mm-hmm. So that's basically what they were using for that decorrelation circuit that was in the THX product. Oh. And, and normally what's in the surround channel is just rain noises or jet noises or something or wind noises or whatever and it doesn't matter but if you had like a focused instrument like in the in in there's a uh, dick tracy that old movie with uh, warren Beatty and madonna um they had a piano recording where mandy patinkin's playing the piano and the piano's in the back channels <laughs> and you put it through the decorrelator and it sounds like an out of tune upright oh wow and it's a big grand piano yeah. right it's really bad really bad and so it's like well, and I still remember Tony Gramati, who was with THX at the time, said, okay, you found the one cut that this completely messes up. I'll grant you that. Fine. What about the rest of the time? I was kind of like, all right, yeah. well, you got a point. So anyway, sorry. No, no, that's a great point. I, I just think that if you're really good at any of this stuff, you should be able to come to your conclusions pretty quickly. But, you know, again... If it takes, you know, if you're taking, it might take me three or four weeks to review a headphone, but the actual three or four weeks of messing around with it, but the actual process boils down to a couple hours. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good place to wrap up for the week. Okay. What do you think? I think that would be great. Mm-hmm. I think we should, we should have some credits. We should give you the credit for your awesome engineering and your awesome mm-hmm. mixing and mastering of this, especially considering that you're knitting together uh, Jeff's iPhone and me in two different hotel rooms and you, I don't know where you are. Well, you're in Alabama. Um, <laughs> I'm in Alabama. Yeah. And yeah. Me, so me, I have uh, my own difficulties. <laughs> me trying to put pillows and stuff around the hotel room to kill some of the room tone and then my dog knocking half of them down. Um, and uh, what, what, well, we should give you, like you credit, credit for the amazing music. Oh, thank yeah, you. you. You did some, yeah, I got some new tunes for this episode. So I'm really excited to start oh, mixing those in. Do did you record that on the road? I recorded it at a Motel 6. Wow. On a $200 really Tascam, $200 Tascam 8 track. Nice. Straight in. No mi- no microphones were used in that recording. It was all straight straight in through direct boxes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. I didn't realize that. We should also say we're a part of the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all aspects of audio, from the very high end to, to super budget to connected to headphones and everything in between. Everything. And uh, is there anyone else we should credit? Um, we should thank Jeff Fritz for appearing. That was nice of him. We should thank Jeff. That was thank very you, nice Jeff. for him. I, I hope. Yeah, I hope we can have more guests sometime soon. That was really fun and different. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.